Movies by Minute Project number five. It's Silverado this time, that's no jive. By Lawrence Kasdan, who wrote the show. Now saddle up now, kids, cause here we go. Howdy, and welcome back, prospectors, to another episode of the Silverado Minute Podcast. Each week, Movie by Minute's host examine the 1985 Lawrence Kasdan-directed Western Silverado, one minute of screen time per episode. I am your host this week. My name is Paul Francis Sullivan. Please, I'm begging you to call me Sully. I am the host of Locked On MLB podcast about baseball. Previously, I was part of the Movie by Minute's world when I hosted Bull Durham Minute. I also have appeared on many episodes of other people's Movie by Minute podcast, and I was a guest host on both The Best Years of Our Lives and Knives Out Minute. I'm also an Emmy-nominated television producer and a comedian, uh, baseball writer, uh, actor sometimes. I'm a teacher now and director of a feature film uh, titled I'll Believe You, which will probably not get the Movie by Minute treatment. But the uh, my guest today was one of the, one of the editors of that movie and someone who I like my previous guest brother Scott uh, Michael Pomerink uh, I've known since high school uh, but is not part of a religious order he is part of uh, the order of editors uh, it's my dear friend Greg Lee how you doing buddy good how you doing Polly I'm doing great I I just asked you to call me Sully you know it's like. It's like it's like they can't even listen to the absolute orders that I'm giving here. I don't. Oh, I, I I'm sorry. I've well, actually, that was an intentional move to infuriate you. See, what I'm doing is I'm I'm engaging in uh, a sort of directorial conceit to make the actors infuriated on set, thus bringing out a fantastic performance. Oh, look! Look at how good! Look at how good my acting is. Yeah. Well, let me just break down this. On today's episode, we are going to be breaking down Minute 64, which begins with Mal running out to see his father dead in the creek and ends with Cobb asking about Emmett's family. Now, Silverado, we've been talking about it. Now, Obviously, we're now more than 60 episodes into this podcast. This is my uh, fourth episode that I'm doing for the series here. Uh, I had mentioned in my first episode that I saw this in the theaters in Lexington, Massachusetts in 1985. And what drew me to this movie, other than the fact that my family went to see virtually every movie, uh, was that I knew that it was written by the guy, it was directed and written by the guy who wrote the screenplays for Empire, Jedi, and Raiders. And it featured John Cleese, even if it's brief enough. So it sort of was a Venn diagram of everything I loved uh, in night as a thirteen-year-old. Uh, now um, you and I are the same age. We went to high school together. Did you see this in the movie theater? I did, and I saw it as a result of I was a, a fanatic of Siskel and Ebert, mm -hmm. and I saw their review of it uh, on their uh, TV show, and they were over the moon about it, mm -hmm. and. I am not a Western guy. Um, I grew up watching Westerns with my dad, and I, I enjoyed that process. But it's so ingrained in me that it's, oh, the sort of um, 
you know, pulpy style that we would not necessarily watch because we didn't have a VHS player. Mm -hmm. So we would just watch whatever was on TV. And quite often the quality of those Westerns were not John Ford level. (laughs) No, no. There was a lot of, as I said in a previous episode, there was a lot of lousy Westerns because it was really cheap to make them. You build one Western town and then you go up to that uh, that area just north of L.A. where they also shot the Gorn scene in Star Trek. Right. I, was, I have a horse run around it a couple of times. And all of a sudden it's the Wild West. I mean, it's one of the reasons why so, so many of them were made is that they, they were you could just recycle sets and costumes and everything like that. Uh, and a point that I had made in a previous episode was that by the time you and I were, you know, becoming big film watchers, the Western had been dissected and yeah. re-examined and recreated by Sergio Leone and then parodied by Mel Brooks. And then they're just left for dead. I mean, after Blazing Saddles, I was, what are you going to do? You can't, you just can't, it's been laughed at too hard. Yeah. And um, so I think that, you know, there's, it's interesting that like we're living in a time now and I'm not going to be grumpy man, Sully, but it seems like every movie is a rehash of a previous uh, franchise. And it's the the only types of movies that Hollywood has any interest in making are superhero films. And well, I mean, you know, you and I, have both been professional writers and I was a professional screenwriter for about probably seven years, six, seven years paid uh, for six, seven years before that had been writing with your good friend, Grant Kaloff, who Mm -hmm. may or may not be on this podcast as well. Um, It's just so interesting because uh, I, I, I got out of that and went into uh, more into editing which, you know, I ended up editing I'll Believe You, the movie that Paul was uh, co-editing it, was talking about uh, that they made about 20 years ago at this point. Um, It's true, it's true, yeah. We shot shot the bulk of it in 2003, so yeah. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, I, I was talking with Grant the other day and marveling about how there is no spec script market anymore. We, you know, back when we were doing it, you would come up with an idea, write it, try to write it as well as you could, and then go out and sell it to the studios. Uh, you know, when I was doing it, there were probably, uh, among comedies, there were probably about 40 scripts sold every year. Last year, I believe there were three. Yeah. So Hollywood truly is not, they're not even in the game. They're yeah. not even really looking for original material. It's just not, that's not the business model anymore. And do you think those writers are going into the like, streaming world? And, oh, like, for sure, yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, they're st- they still exist. It's just it's a different... I mean I, I mean, I said before that when I was in film school in the early 90s, everyone was trying to be Scorsese or Spike Lee or Jim Jarmusch or the Coen brothers or eventually then later Tarantino. Um, and now everyone wants to be Vince Gilligan and they want to do... Yeah showrunners you know the idea is not i'm gonna write the great american screenplay it's gonna write the great american pilot yeah uh, and it's really too bad because as much as everybody loves streaming and i love streaming there is no question that even in the best shows in streaming there's a lot of filler 
because they have to stretch this thing out and they can't burn story as they call it in TV. They can't get too dramatic in any one episode because they have to keep the options open for future episodes. Whereas in feature film, the great thing is that it's usually, unless you're talking ironically, you know, empire strikes back (laughs) Lawrence Kasdan. But usually the story is over by the time the movie is over. And that type of, succinct storytelling that you know silverado excels at and it's just not around anymore one of the reasons you know, why i brought one of the reasons i brought that up is that i keep wanting because i when i first met you i was just drooling for the concept of a batman film to be made all right and now i'm drooling for the concept of a film without batman being made <laughs> and um I mean, we've had how many Jokers in the last? Oh God! I mean, between between, I mean, Heath Ledger doesn't seem that long ago, and we've gone through Jared Leto, Walking Phoenix, and now there's going to be a new one. Yeah, and it's like, make us miss you, make us miss you a little bit, and then there may be enthusiasm, <laughs> and that brings us full circle back to Silverado, in that the idea of making a you know carefully making a western like this was kind of novel in now, now there there was the irony that this film was actually outgrossed by pale rider uh the clint eastwood film right so there were two westerns this year and everything was blown out of the water by back to the future in the summer of 1985 so the film this film was actually not that big of a box office hit right but, uh and i think most people the reason i asked most people saw it on VHS. Well, do you happen to remember what movie theater you saw it in? And, and the UA six in Redwood City. Oh, uh, that's where I saw. That's where Scott Pomerick and I saw Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade on opening. Oh, weekend. nice. Yeah, yep. yeah. It was. Um, you know, it's funny that I you get wistful over over a movie theater that at the end of the day was just a chain movie theater. <laughs> it was, if we went back there now, it's probably. I was thinking of like a lot. I saw this in the Lexington movie theater in in Lexington, Massachusetts, and the Sac Cinema in Lexington. And I'm I'm and that's also where I saw Amadeus. I saw a couple other really big movies in the '80s. And I and I'm you know wistful thinking about that. I bet if I if I Marty McFly back to there, I bet <laughs> it was a dump. It was a total dump. A total dump. I bet the <laughs> the seats were lousy. You know, I bet there was crap. Oh, the screens! Ground. The screen was dim. I mean, it was it was the UA six, so it was one of the first, you know, like multi theater things. And basically, each of the theaters sat about you know sixty people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were clearly had been a bigger theater, and they just cleaved it. Now. Oh yeah! Oh my god! Four thirds. I remember that New York City was so guilty of that. Of like, there used to be like this was a place where you probably saw like you know the the premiere of a place in the sun and now right it was just they was just they put a like it was curved theater where there was a wall in the middle of it i saw the movie nixon the the oliver stone film nixon which is actually a film i i really enjoy i think it's bananas but i like the fact that it's bananas absolutely I, I saw it in theater in um in new york and it was a curved movie palace 
the 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 wall went right down the middle. There's no it curved. It was no like why am I sitting like this watching a game? Watching wait, the, wait watching are the you movie. saying are you saying the left side of the screen is straight and the right side no, no, curved? No, 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 because the, it was a giant curved screen they bisected? Well well no that it was the, the seats were like kind of a bowl that they put a wall right in between in oh. like a curve, like a parenthesis there. And then they just put up a, a like, you know, like a white sheet. And like, and, and then there's like, there's like, you know, soda stains on the, right. you know. That's but, like uh, when I went, the one and only time I went to see a baseball game at the Big A in Anaheim, and I was, I found my seat out in the outfield, and if I was to sit straight in my seat, I was looking out over the center field fence. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. entire game, I had to twist in my seat to look at home plate. Oh. So, yes, uh, yeah, those, those movie theaters where they, it was basically the mid-80s, mm -hmm. they had decided to make movie theaters corporate. Yep. And to get as many screens as possible. And all of a sudden, everything was a, a 12, a 6, or whatever, you know. I, I, the place that we used to go to all the time in the suburbs of Boston was called Shopper's World in Framingham, where they had a 6 uh, theater. That's where I saw, um, I saw a Temple of Doom there. I saw, uh, I saw, I saw Jedi for the first time in Chestnut Hill. But then there was that was a period of time when birthday parties meant going to the movies. Yeah, that was of a real. That was one way you would see Return of the Jedi or like ET. I remember my twelfth birthday was Ghostbusters. Yeah, and then and that's how you wind up seeing. How did I see that five times in the movie theater? Right, and it's because you went to a bunch of birthday parties, and it was like as a young kid, I remember Superman the movie and the black hole and the black mm -hmm. stallion were big birthday party movies yeah um by the way the black hole is a birthday party film i was seven when i saw it it ends with a spaceship going through a black hole and images of heaven and hell <laughs> it was a different i time. don't even remember i saw that in movie theaters and i don't remember the end of it i hated it so much because it was such an obvious Star Wars ripoff. That's why I liked it, because it was such a Star Wars ripoff. Um, but yeah, uh, so when you saw it in the movie theater, back to Silverado, this what we're Yeah, I, I, I saw it with my... So my dear departed dad um, was a... You know, like I said, we would watch Westerns on our black and white television, because uh, we not only didn't have a VHS, I didn't know Star Trek, the original Star Trek, was shot in color until I went to college. <laughs> Somebody had it on a color television. So we would we would watch Westerns on the black and white TV, and it was fun to see them with my dad, but, you know, they were of varying levels of, of quality. So I wasn't a huge Western guy. But when we saw um, the review for Silverado together... I knew that was a movie my dad would instantly jump up and go see because it's a Western yeah. and, you know, this is right in his wheelhouse. And so uh, all of us, you know, my sister, brother, mom, dad and I, uh, you know, good old, Nancy the UA Lee. good old Nancy Lee. Yeah, we went to the uh, went to the UA six dumpy little, uh, you know, chain theater as we were talking. And, um, you know, uh, my dad 
loved it like you would expect that he would have loved it. Um, and that experience, the fact that he loved it so much also, I'm sure, uh, you know, helped me love the movie as well, because the movie itself is great, but also, uh, you know, it was a real family experience. Um, and you know, I was, I was a, a teenager, uh, and, uh, starting to, uh, you know, drift away from my dad. So I think this was a moment that we could, uh, sort of get together and, and really love. And, you know, we all loved all the actors in it. I mean, it's just a murderer's row of great actors and, and yeah, just a great time. Yeah. I, I mean, I, those who listen, you know, I talked about my experience seeing it with my family that day. Um, I actually, I had a hard time following some of the story because it's a very dense story. Yeah. Uh, and then we wound up taping it off of like Cinemax or movie channel or whatever. And then watching it on tape, uh, then I was like, oh, okay, that's what's there's some because there's a lot of times when I talk about, you know, he's uh, but there's still a couple of things I haven't figured out exactly. Yeah. But uh, but then you have the great scenes like the you know the, the John Cleese sequence is amazing. Oh. The, the Stampede sequence is incredible, um, and it was also and again I'm I'm trying not to repeat myself here, but it's where I I was in early on Kevin Costner, uh, mm-hmm. and I wanted and you know he has he steals the movie in my opinion, and I and Me, I wish I wish. I think- Oh, go ahead. No, say what you were going to say. I think this, and this may sound funny, but this is one of my favorite performances by him ever. It is really his least wooden performance he's ever, I mean, it's a very rubbery, you know, big comedic Mm -hmm. performance. And he really comes across like an actor in it because he really inhabits that role you know sometimes i love i i love kevin costner but he is in many ways the sort of classical leading actor type where he plays an archetype Mm -hmm. and he usually plays that in every movie he's in or some variation thereof this is one time he was just completely out of the box and it was his first big role so it was really it's really fun to watch now I was uh, I was listening to the episodes where the the Indiana Jones Minute Boys were on, and they were both talking about they wish they saw more of this Kevin Costner. Like this is damn, he was he was capable of this and being very over the top and a little silly. And I just he was my favorite character in the movie. I thought he was funny. I mean, I think he looks amazing on film, but he also has a playfulness and a silliness to him that we when he decided to become Gary Cooper. Um, just think about like he would have probably played the Kevin Klein part later. Yes, and he would have he would have been fine, right? But like seeing this, and of course we're bringing up bringing up another film that you know I did the movie by minute for Bull Durham, which is a film I adore. It's my favorite baseball film, and we got to see Goofy Tim Robbins in that film, right? Before, before he was Shawshank Redemption and the Player and. Uh, Mystic River, all these films where he's Arlington Road, Arlington Road, Jacob's Ladder, all these films where he's he's a wonderfully intense dramatic actor. We get to see silly Tim Robbins. You know, I I may have pointed this out to you uh, when you were a guest on uh, 
hold on a minute, but uh, in in 2003, uh, Tim Robbins won the Oscar for Mystic River for Best Supporting Actor, and that same year, Sean Penn won Best Actor for the same movie. And I'm thinking Spicoli and Nuke Lelouch. Oh my God, both, you're right. You know, we we, we didn't get the funk. We have that we we know what Sean Penn is capable of in comedy. We know that Kevin Costner is capable of this in in a in play, playing a yeah. comedic role. And um, I mean, did he ever do another role like I this? I can't think of a single one. I mean, because think of it. After this, he did The Untouchables, right? Which is where he really exploded into being a, uh, a movie star, and then you had like No Way Out. He has some comedic moments in Field of Dreams, but it's not, it's still, right. it's, it's, when you have someone it's like- It's earnest. It is yeah. an earnest. Yes. And I happen to be a fan of Field of Dreams as well. Oh, I love it. Yeah. Um, and then you have, the, by, the, by the time he did Dances with Wolves, he became, yeah. he started reading his own press. Right. Uh, <laughs> I happen to be a big fan of JFK. Um, and uh, the mailman, of course. The postman. Postman. You know, but like- you know, I mean, look at him. The, his other Costner, his other Lawrence Kasdan collaborations were The Bodyguard, which was written by Kasdan. Oh, that's and, right. And Wyatt Earp, which was written and directed by Kasdan. Um, and, um, you know, build a canoe out of him. He's wood. Right, and, right, uh, right. But, you know, I'm glad that this film exists. It's like this weird. Well, and another, another thing, you know, because I rewatched it again because I was obviously, you know, coming on the podcast. And there was a moment that sells him so well. Let's see if that I go. I have one where he comes right. out on the porch and does the spinning guns, mm -hmm. and he does them just perfectly and effortlessly. Yep. And you're like, oh my god, that takes a lot of talent to do. Yeah. And you're just you're in with this guy. Yeah. You know what I mean? I then when he shoots the dude. Like shoots the stairs, the guy's running up the stairs. Yeah, and then Kevin Klein does a shh. I mean that that's uh, I mean that to me is like that's where you saw that this is the screenwriter of Raiders. That right, you have, right, right. You but have, also the screenwriter of Raiders with a a amazing comedic talent because that spinning gun thing. So the other incredible, you know, very famous spinning gun shot in a western in the last 40 years was from um, uh, uh, Wyatt Earp, I think, where, what's his... Tombstone. Oh, Tombstone. Tombstone. That's right. Yeah. Tombstone. Yeah. But that's done with edits, yeah. right? Whereas the one in this, it's cost, It's one shot, it's a long shot, and it's mm -hmm. Costner walking out, acting from, you know, on the head of the scene. Then he stands there, and then for 30 seconds does an immaculate gun spinning routine on his hands, puts him in the holster and acts the rest of the scene. You're like, oh, my God, without an edit in it? Like, this guy is good. <laughs> yeah. I remember when The Untouchables came out, there, were, there was a lot of press that it was kind of Sean Connery is no longer Bond. He's embracing his age. And that was big news. And De Niro was going to play Capone. That was big news. And the two things that got me more excited about it was that the dude from Silverado is the star. Oh, that's right. And also Charles Martin Smith. I was a huge American Graffiti fan. And so it's got 
it's got um, Jake from Silverado and the Toad from American Graffiti. And so I like to call Charles Martin Smith from uh, 5050. Well, there you go. Well, we're not here. We're not here to bury Charles Martin Smith. We're here to talk about uh, specifically minute 64. So let's get to that. We see yeah. the tail. We see the tail end of um, Danny Glover as Mal running out to see his father. Um, I'm going to bring up an unusual film. The, the film you may not be expecting that to bring up for this particular shot. But I'm going to bring up uh, the Richard Donner Superman for this particular shot. Because when Jonathan Kent dies, uh, who was later woodenly played by Kevin Costner in one of the dreadful Zack oh, Snyder yes. films. Um, Although Jonathan, he got a lot of good press for that performance. But right. uh, yeah, I thought. But um, when uh, 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 Jonathan Kent is wonderfully played by Glenn Ford in the Richard Donner yeah. version. When he dies, and he kind of he he sees he's having the heart attack, and then he he tumbles, um, the, it, he tumbles to a wide shot. Yeah, you don't see you don't see like Glenn Ford, you know, wriggling on the ground. And then when young teenage Clark, uh, played by Jeff East and Phyllis Thaxter as Martha, see him and they run out, it stays on a very wide shot. You know, and they run out. And you see they're trying to revive him. And I remember that being my favorite shot when I was a kid watching Superman. That death, the way that was shot, hit me so hard. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, like, as a kid, I didn't know what camera angles were or anything, but I was like, what was it about the way they did that that right. was so amazing? And it's, yeah, it's on a master. It's not on a... And and in this one where, where Ezra uh, is... Yep. is like I mentioned in the previous minute that he's given the dignity of not seeing him get shot and then kind of float down the river or right. float down the stream. And we, but that also allows um, Danny Glover's character to kind of try to figure out what's happening. Like, he well, you know what, what popped into my head was Luke Skywalker finding his parents in long shot burning. His aunt and uncle. What's it? Like, I mean, the, his the, aunt and uncle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, you know, burning in a long shot. You never get closer than that. Right. And then this is really that sort of long shot. You see his body hung up on on trees, and it's mm -hmm. grotesque. Uh, kind, of, and then, kind of reminiscent of uh, of uh, when they find Ronnie Cox's body in uh, Deliverance. Yeah. You know, when his his head, his arm is sort of snapped around his right, just, but they're given they've given uh, Ezra, played by uh, Joe Seneca from Crossroads with uh, uh, Ralph Macchio, um, and uh, he he gets to have a little bit of dignity there. Yeah, and and you know, um, as we're both editors, and we were talking about editing, it is also great that they didn't cut into a close once Danny Glover gets out to his father. Yeah. They just let it play in the ultra wide. You don't even see if he's talking to him or anything. They just let it play. And they don't have the shot of Danny Glover seeing his dad. Exactly. Around like, I'll get them. Like, no, we, we, it's, we get it. it's understood. And this, what this, um, you know, of course you have very melodramatic music and everything like that. But it trusts the story, yeah, and it trusts the but most it trusts the audience that I don't have to hold your hand, right? 
I don't need the money shot, the Oscar caliber performance. You know what I mean? Like the Oscar clip shot. We don't need to go into that. Keep it on the wide. And, and you know, this, this movie is so full of great editing decisions, great directing decisions, and great, like, I was worried. I remember being worried as a kid going to see this with my dad because Siskel and Ebert had said it was funny. And I was worried it was going to be like MTV funny, like they were going to try and do, you know, the thing that is has been uber hot for the past 15, 20 years, which is to do like a Western, but everybody's texting in it, you know, like yeah. it's uh, on Apple TV. What Dickinson is, is that, you know, it's a period drama, but everybody's talking as if they were texting or using modern yeah. and Silverado does not do that. It stays true to the genre, but it finds comedy within the genre that is can be a little hip, but it's it doesn't break the reality of the world. It, it remains classic filmmaking, and I love that. Well, it's witty. It's witty, yeah. and it's also you saw that in Raiders, and you saw that in Empire. Right. You know? So it's, it's. I think it's very clear that you have that same tone like how do we stay within this world but find comedy comedy that comes not out of we're gonna we need a gag but right. more out of the 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 characters well let's uh now um we're gonna so head we back go from that shot yeah to the, the morning star to right. you see uh you see um linda hunt going through the 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 books right which comes up later in this scene and again, this is a gorgeous shot that you have Linda Hunt in the foreground. And she's up on her perch and you see uh, Peyton and Emmett, Kevin Klein and Scott Glenn sitting in the background of the shot. So, you know, again, we're establishing where we are. We're establishing the space here. And we're also subtly bringing up, you know, the, the books and the finances, which becomes a big part in the next minute. Right. Um, and then we have, again, this is a classic piece of, this is to, this is everything in film coming together in this shot in that you have the the staging and the the camera movement of the scene and a motivated edit it isn't just it isn't just a long shot for the sake of a long shot and isn't just an edit for the sake of an edit and um and i just break you know just going through this um, Kevin Klein and Scott Glenn are talking about Rosanna Arquette. And again, it remains the creepiest part of the film that Kevin <laughs> Klein is basically leering over Rosanna Arquette before she becomes a widow and now is starting to lose interest in her because she wants to be a farmer or something like that. And basically saying, uh, go ahead, Scott Glenn, go for it. Um, <laughs> that, that was, yeah, that is absolutely like, what? Yeah, our hero, folks, our hero. Um, <laughs> it was the 80s, and the 80s were terrible. That's what we always have to remember. The 80s were terrible. Um, and then in walks, I mean, again, I talked about this a few episodes ago. Uh, my favorite Brian Dennehy role, my favorite Brian Dennehy performance, and my favorite kind of villain in that he kind of thinks that I'm not a bad guy. I'm right. just 
you know, I'm not a mustache twirl. I'm just, I'm trying to run this town and make the, yeah, I'm probably a little crooked, but we all got to get, if we all get together, we, you know, we can all make a pile of money. And he walks in, you know, he comes in through the saloon doors, this massive, like not just massive in terms of his, you know, his girth, but just he fills the screen with his presence and his voice and his, 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 um, you know, charm. His, his charm. And he's standing while they're sitting. So he looks like he's in, you know, he's also in control and everything's friendly. He introduces them to Emmett. And then it cuts to a single shot of Cobb, right? Then he's character when he brings up Emmett's, you know, Emmett's sister and basically saying, I know you're the, I know who you are. And I know that you and I are actually kind of enemies. And by doing that, it ceases to become a friendly shot where we're all together. It's like, no, I'm apart from you. Right. It's a single. And, um, and it becomes, and of course, in the next minute, we see that there is one of the great things that Scott Glenn does, even in this movie, is of perfectly playing the, I'm a little awkward right now, but I'm too manly to admit it. But right. uh, I, I just think as, as someone who is as talented and skilled as an editor as you, you understand the, the, what makes great editing isn't necessarily, you know, the Benihana style of just cutting everything up and everything right. that sometimes it's finding the motivated edit, like, right. in, like in Jaws where there's a very long take and they cut to him typing in shark attack in the medical report and they cut back. It's that edit, that moment where we're going to cut to this right? Um, is that's, that's where, that's, uh, where you go from showing off to doing a good job. Right, right. And the angle they have on him in the close is great. It's just a powerful, you know, he looks powerful. Uh, and he, his performance is just, he's so always great. got this, he's always got this glitter in his eye. Mm-hmm. And he's always, you, you like him. I mean, you, even though he's the bad guy, you're like, oh, he's such a because he he comes off almost like a Lando Calrissian, in a sense, but who's gone bad, right? He's he's gone one step too far, and I I like later you you realize, you know, he realizes he's gone over the edge but when it's too late. It's too, when they take about. the kid, he's just like, oh man, like he he realizes. He, what was charming and where he was maybe a, a raconteur, sort of a, a scoundrel before uh, with a dark past, but he is now going over the edge into fascism, basically. Yeah. Uh, now that he has the star on his chest. Yeah. And, you know, his his playing of that performance of a guy who's got a ton of charm, but he's making his big move and his big play now um, is it's, it's just captivating. You, I, I love the character and I, and you love to hate the character later, you know? And it's a very American wild West yes. character in that he was a guy who was riding, probably doing a bunch of jobs. And now he's found, okay, here's how I'm going to make my living. Here's where I've got to drop anchor in this town that's being created. I'm going to make some money. I can settle down here. And all I have to do is have people look the other way. Right. 
and that he is a rogue and he but he is he is just filled with just charm and and energy and you know even in some of the later scenes when he's trying to convince uh you know obviously is the very brutal scene where they beat up uh mal yeah. danny glover's character you know you see he's sadistic but right. he, there's also scenes where you could totally understand why you'd want to be his friend right and i i mean and it and it's a sign of just this was peak Dennehy, by the way. Yeah, was, yeah, and and he knows it. Like yeah. you can tell, he knows he's killing it. <laughs> and and like you say, like that you understand why Kevin Klein, you know, Kevin Klein's character, you know, always sort of has that glint in his eye when Dennehy's around because you can tell they've they get along. You know, they've got this sort of uh, puckish sense of humor together. And then he just goes bad and and goes the wrong direction. Yeah, and they also, I mean, it's not in this minute, but it is a wonderful moment that it's like um, that uh, Scott Glenn's character does, he, he knows that he's an antagonistic person to him. Right. And he wasn't there for the... Um, uh, the fun, charming parts of his life. And we see what happens, and we're going to see in the next minute, which we're going to get to just shortly. So he only sees the bad side, and then he has that great moment. He says, you used to ride with that guy? Right, As right. He said, no, you don't understand. He was a cool guy. He's yeah. just kind of like, you're only seeing this part of it. Um, by the way, uh, um, between uh, 82 and eight, and this one, I mean, he's Brian Denning, he was contractually obligated to appear in every other movie. Yes. Um, but his films included first, where he played major parts, include First Blood, included Never Cry Wolf, uh, included Cocoon, which came out this year as well, where he was wonderful in Cocoon, uh, Silverado, a film called Twice in a Lifetime with Gene Hackman, and then he was in FX, which was just this wonderfully goofy uh, action thriller that came out that I just remembered loving when i saw it i don't know if it holds up at all but as a as seeing it in a movie theater for like two bucks oh as 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 a as a movie geek kid yeah. that was just like the greatest idea that a special effects guy would somehow get wrangled into an action you know and he had to do effects to get himself out of it it was just, exactly it, it was a lot of fun well do it's also been a lot of fun having greg lee on to talk about this minute, I want to have you come on to do minute 65, which will be uh, my final minute of this week. But hey, uh, Greg, can anyone f follow you or what you do or uh, in the social media? Um, basically, uh, no, except uh, unless you watch uh, um, ABC, uh, I cut a lot of uh, the spots for uh, ABC commercials for their. So. Uh, I did most of, a lot of the spots, most of the spots for Abbott Elementary, uh, Home Economics with Topher Grace. And so if you uh, see a spot for an ABC comedy, I probably cut it. So there you go. Well, we'll look at and for me, follow me at uh, Sully Baseball on Twitter, Sully Baseball Podcast on Instagram uh, and check out Locked on MLB which is the podcast that I host. And also, if you want to listen to my, the old uh, Bull Durham Minute podcast, uh, Greg Lee was on there when we solved the Thurman Munson dilemma during the end <laughs> credits. Um, 
By the way, if you if you're liking this show, why don't you check out the uh, Midnight Star Silverado Minute Listener Saloon? That's on Facebook. Follow us on Twitter at Silverado MXM, uh, and you can also, you know, you've obviously you've discovered the podcast because you're hearing my voice right now. But we're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or at the main site SilveradoMinute.com. And if you enjoy this type of podcast. There are hundreds of other movies, not just Full Durham, but many, many other movies are at Movie by Minute Podcast, available at moviesbyminute.com, and check those out. And check us out as we're going to come back tomorrow for Minute 65 at the Silverado Minute. Yee-haw! Give us a yee-haw! Yee-haw!